A Matter of Spirit is the quarterly justice journal of the Intercommunity Peace and Justice Center. This article appeared in the spring 2019 issue on Seeking Racial Justice. White Privilege and What to Do About It by Jacqueline Batalora. Jacqueline Batalora is the author of Birth of a White Nation, The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today. An attorney, professor of sociology at St. Xavier University, and former Chicago police officer. She is an editor for the Journal of Understanding and Dismantling Privilege. White Privilege The scholar Peggy McIntosh describes white privilege as an invisible package of unearned assets. These assets are largely unrecognized by those who hold them, and are rendered invisible through dominant social practices. Law provides many concrete examples of white privilege. The U.S. Naturalization Law of 1790 is one such example. The very first Congress of the country determined that in order to naturalize as a U.S. citizen, one had to be white. This particular structural advantage that conferred white privilege was shared by poor and wealthy alike, and it did not matter whether one was aware of the advantage or desired it. The advantage was simply built in, a feature of law. The requirement of being white to naturalize lasted more than 150 years, conferring advantage to immigrants who were seen as white not because they did anything special, but rather simply because they were white in the eyes of courts. The Naturalization Law of 1790 is an example of systemic white advantage, with the reverse side of the same coin being systemic racism. The advantage extended beyond immigrants to other whites, both in the past and present. The law worked to construct a white equals American equation that continues today, creating both systemic and personal advantage for whites and disadvantage for people of color. Regardless of when one's family arrived on North American shores, those who are seen as white are treated as American, as people who belong here, as those who should access and claim the rights and liberties of the U.S. This is not how Americans of Asian descent, for example, are treated, despite having some family in the U.S. for more than 150 years. These Asian Americans are frequently presumed to be immigrants, and complimented for their good English. White privilege derived from naturalization law goes beyond common everyday assumptions about who is presumed to be American. It has also shaped how people are commonly referenced. Americans with descendants from Asia, for example, are referred to as Asian Americans, while those with descendants from Europe are simply American. White privilege operates to give whites unfair access to resources, both material land, money, jobs, and symbolic. Positive representations, including common toys like Superman, Barbie. Advantages simply by virtue of being white. The benefits conferred by virtue of being white are, of course, mediated by gender, class, sexuality, religion, and disability, among other fiercely enforced categories. For example, under the Expatriation Act of 1907, a white man's U.S. citizenship was not impacted by the person he married, whereas a white woman lost her U.S. citizenship if she married a non-citizen ineligible for naturalization. 
i.e. not white. And of course, one of the most important expressions of citizenship, the vote, was accessible to white men, but only to white women beginning in 1920 with the passage of the 19th Amendment. White Fragility White privilege allows white people to move around in the world with greater ease, dignity, and comfort than most people of color. The social structure that creates white privilege also insulates whites from race-based stress caused by such triggers as a claim that one's behavior had a racist impact or that one's success came in part by virtue of being white, to mention just a couple. According to Robin DiAngelo's 2011 journal article, White Fragility, in International Journal of Critical Pedagogy, the social context of the U.S. produces an environment of racial protection for whites. It results in expectations that they will maintain racial comfort. This environment simultaneously lowers the ability of white people to tolerate or navigate race-based stress. This inability to tolerate race-based stress is what D'Angelo calls white fragility and defines as a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves that function to reinstate white racial equilibrium. D'Angelo explains that white fragility is what happens when white privilege gets contested. White fragility gets expressed in a variety of ways. Some people avoid confronting racial bias by walking away or bursting into tears or both, while others respond with anger and rage. Crying when confronted with facing racial bias diverts attention away from the topic of bias and results in the crier's hurt feelings becoming the center of attention. Rather than cry or walk away, some avoid facing racial bias by exploding in anger and citing hard work and personal struggle as the true source of white success. The anger works to sharpen focus upon one's impassioned claims and to sideline the issue of racial bias. The claims of individual effort completely bypass the structural advantages that made it possible for one's hard work to pay off. In these ways, white fragility works to preserve the racial status quo and to keep central white people's feelings, interests, and claims. White fragility is the biggest roadblock keeping communities, organizations, and white individuals from developing the competency to identify the workings of whiteness. Whiteness. Both white privilege and white fragility rest upon a foundation of whiteness. In fact, both are the result of dynamic interplay of whiteness. In her 1993 book, White Women, Race Matters, The Social Construction of Whiteness, sociologist Ruth Frankenberg defines whiteness as a location of structural advantage, of race privilege. Second, it is a standpoint, a place from which white people look at ourselves, at others, and at society. Third, whiteness refers to a set of cultural practices that are usually unmarked and unnamed. The Naturalization Law of 1790 is an example of a structural advantage. It, in turn, worked to shape white viewpoints of white people as desirable, of non-whites as undesirable, and a view of the world as better when white. Together, these worked to constitute the national practice of seeing white as American. There are many thousands of structural examples throughout U.S. history up to the present moment, 
that most of us are not taught about them and that our U.S. history texts exclude them is a major challenge for K-12 educators and a huge red flag to all who seek social justice. The history of legal disputes arising from the Naturalization Law of 1790 provide examples of race as a construct. Because white was never defined as a matter of federal law, disputes over who is white were fought in courts. Legal scholar Ian F. Hanley Lopez's analysis of these legal disputes in his 1996 books, Wrote by Law, The Legal Construction of Race, reveals that one court defined being Caucasian as being white, while yet another court rejected the equation. The court cases expose that those we see as white reflect not a genetic or biological group, but a complex matrix of law, policy, and practices that have created meaning we describe as race. When we understand that race is a social construct, not rooted in biology, but rather the result of human actions and choices, the path out becomes clear. Whiteness requires continual affirmation and reconstruction to be sustained. There is a way out of whiteness, a construction of domination and exclusion. The way out is to dismantle whiteness and instead choose liberation and belonging. This is no small feat, but is absolutely doable. Each one of us possesses the power to reject whiteness within our own lives and spheres of influence. Understanding some of the history of institutionalized white superiority within each moment of U.S. history is critical because it makes clear what anti-racism activist Tim Wise frequently notes in his lectures. Whiteness has been done to all of us. There is no need for white people to fall into guilt or despair because the structures we were born into ensured the pervasive message of the superiority of white people. It is no one individual's fault. There is, however, a desperate need for white people to identify the workings of whiteness and make daily choices that fracture the domination and exclusion it asserts. I call this whiteness competency. Daily choices include the area we drive through or avoid, the areas we select to live within, the businesses we patronize, the people we hire, the comments we make, the people we see and those we do not, those we invite over for dinner, those we confide in, the trust we have or withhold, etc. In countless daily activities, we either support the status quo or forge a new construct rooted in liberation and belonging for a diverse humanity. Whiteness must be dismantled within minds and hearts through daily choices made, through policies and practices supported, through structures and institutions rejected, and new ones created, through entirely new ways of being. New structures and institutions aligned with liberation and belonging for a diverse humanity will result from many individual actions that envision and support them.